You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Hi, um, welcome to uh, Comeback City, Detroit's past, present, and future. Today, we're going to talk about um, something that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, J.L. Hudson's, the downtown store that, you know, kind of defined downtown Detroit for a gen- generations of people um, who had a very rich history. There's so much going on with J.L. Hudson's that we can talk about. I mean, um, the man himself, uh, J.L. Hudson, uh, the empire he built kind of with his retail store, the parade that is still going on today, um, and the plans for the future of the Hudson site, which is very exciting and we'll get to later. And with me today as my co-host is Nancy Colbert. Hi. And uh, we're just going to kind of talk a little bit about um, what happened, uh, how it started, how it evolved, a little bit about um, Hudson himself, and we're going to Maybe reminisce a little bit about our memories of the store when we were young and our families lived in Detroit. So um, let's get started. Um, so Nancy, who was J.L. Hudson? Joseph L. Hudson came as an immigrant with his family from England, and they first settled in Canada. And then eventually immigrated again to Ionia, Michigan, which was a very small rural town at that time with a sawmill. And they opened a store. Eventually, because of the financial crisis, that store went under. Do you know what year that was, Nancy? Yeah. Was It was like the 1800s, 1800s. wasn't it? Yes. Like the mid-1800s, kind of? It was. And at that time, stores were a very integral part of the community, and they loaned money. There was out. no Amazon. There, there was, was no, Im- uh, you know, internet. <laughs> no, and so when the store went under, so we're talking about um, Joseph. I don't remember what his middle name was. What Lothian? What was Lothian Hudson. And um where did you say they lived? Ionia? They lived in Ionia. That small little lumber community. What were they doing there? They owned a small men's clothing store. Oh, they did. Okay. He and his dad. He and his father did. And uh, how did that small little clothing store turn into J.L. Hudson, downtown Hudson's? Well, after the financial crisis of 1873. Um, oh, okay. This is after the Civil War. Yeah. Yes. Um, when the sawmill was closed and they went bankrupt, Joseph moved to Detroit. So the sawmill closed, yes. and then nobody had work, nobody and had so work. nobody had money to right. buy clothes. Oh, yes. okay. This totally makes sense. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes. 
so um, when those sawmills were silenced and Joseph's father died, Joseph moved to Detroit where he opened a small men's clothing store again in what was the old opera house on Campus Martius. Oh, wow. Cool. And one of the important things about Joseph was that he began a very consumer-friendly return policy. Oh, I do remember hearing about this, yeah. Yes, which was very new for people to be able to return and have the consumer actually be protected. Oh, okay, sure. That would make you more likely to buy something, too, if you knew you could take it back if it didn't work out. Yes, that's true. Oh, okay. And so that was kind of a new theory back then. It was very forward-thinking. Oh, yeah. Wow. Sounds great. Yeah. So he started this, you know business in the Opera House? Yes, the Opera House in Campus Marshes. Oh, Very okay. small. Just a small little haberdashery kind of. Yes, it was. Yeah. Dry and, goods or something. Yeah. And he was doing so well that he was able to hire more and more professionals. Oh, okay. And so his store became more well-known, especially with that consumer being able to return things in a more friendly and a more profitable way for them. So he was becoming successful. Yes, he was. And he also had set um, low prices so that people could afford his goods. Oh. And so he became more and more profitable. And then he started to move and build the empire that we associate with the Hudsons of Detroit. Right, right. So he built a building, uh, what was it, Woodward, and uh, what's it? Eventually he moved to Woodward, he yes. He moved to Woodward, yeah, and built a small building there, and um, I think he, like, kind of just built a small building and then started adding on and adding on and adding on, and, you know, before he knew it, he had, what, what, how many, what was it, 14 floors altogether, the... Um, the building, I think it was. And, um, yeah, you know, it was just, it was a, it was an amazing thing. It really was. Oh, it was 25 stories. It was, right. It was 25 stories. And it was the, at one time, it was the world's tallest department store. Yes. And it went from just a small men's and boys wear to the JL Hudson's that we remember growing up of women's clothing and home goods. It was a remarkable feat that he created this very large, well-known yeah. Yeah, I do grocery have, store. I, I do have some information about it. I think it was over 2 million square feet in size, um, making it second in size among department stores to only Macy's in New York. Yes. And actually, Macy's was only 26,000 square feet bigger. It wasn't even that much bigger. And the store itself was um, spread over 32 floors, 25, uh, I think, stores that had merchandise, two half floors, a mezzanine, and four basements. And it was had 
51 passenger elevators, 17 freight elevators, 8 employee elevators, and 48 escalators, which I remember. Um, and its largest freight elevator could accommodate a semi-trailer. The store had three transformer centers uh, and generated enough juice to power of a, a city of about 20,000 people. It felt like a city when you went in there, didn't it? It really did. It really did. What do you uh, remember about Hudson's? Do you remember going like with your mom or your grandmother or I do? But what do you remember? Oh, I remember the trips that my mom would take us to Hudson's and just walking through those double doors into that main floor where all the cosmetics and perfumes and the glittering chandeliers and all the beautiful women were there. And it just felt like a whole new world. Glamour. Total yes. glamour. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of remember it too. And I, I remember you said you loved the book nook. Oh, going up the escalators, or my favorite was the riding of the elevators with those special brass doors. I know. And didn't they have elevator operators? Oh, yes. And they would ask you what floor. And going up to the little book area, which felt like a real library with wooden shelves and stacked book upon book of reads for children for adults oh. it was a magical place at I that really time I remember that yeah it was a magical place for sure i remember going with my grandmother all the time cuz i my grandmother lived in detroit and we would take the bus down to detroit and we'd always have lunch on the 13th floor and i can remember everything about it i remember my grandmother always saying oh you know your aunt emmy liked the always got the pot pie and the marie salad and did you and your mom have lunch up there too oh yes and didn't you get the sanders ice cream right puff? i remember that too yeah a hot punch, uh hot fudge sunday yes that was always amazing too and so. the view from the restaurant Oh, really? Yes. To the outside? To the outside. You remember that? I don't remember yes. that. Yeah. Okay, so I have some more facts on the store. It had um, 39 men's restrooms, 50 for women. Oh, that's pretty forward thinking. 10 private ones <laughs> for executives. Um, the largest was a woman's lounge on the fourth floor that had 85 stalls. Is that wild? Um, it had 705 fitting rooms, which, according to my information here, a world record. And the dining room and cafeteria served an average of 10,000 meals a day, not counting the 6,000 meals a day served in the employee cafeteria on the 14th floor. And uh, it says uh, it was renowned for its Maurice salad and Canadian cheese soup, which do you remember Canadian cheese soup? I do not. I remember it on the menu. Do you remember it? I always got the chicken pot pie. You, uh, yeah, the chicken pot pie. The chicken pot pie yes. was amazing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So they had 49 large display windows facing Woodward, Gratiot, Farmer, and Grand River Avenues. And there were an additional 50 interior display windows in um, areas like the elevator corridors and in the Woodward shops on the seventh floor. And the store had more than 200 departments across uh, 49 acres of floor space. And it featured 600,000 items from 16,000 vendors from 40 countries. 
I mean, it was, magical. You you hit the you know nail on the spot when you said magical. It was, it was like walking into a little city in itself. You could find anything and everything there that you wanted, or didn't even know you wanted. Yeah. And uh, what I also, the original Hudson store featured an auditorium, which I didn't know about. A, a circulating library? I didn't know about that. The dining room, barber shops, a photo studio, holiday exhibits, and a magnificent place called Toy Town. Nancy, did you ever go to Toy Town? I don't remember Toy Town. Was it the sand Is that thing? The... I and I kind of remember, you know, going through like this long hallway to get to Santa. Was that Toy Town? Maybe that was it. I'll have to check that out again. But that wasn't truly for a child to walk through the long hallway with all the crystally stars blinking from the lights that were strewn and walking into the room with a full-size carousel. Oh, it was absolutely dreamlike for a child. I think you're right. Yeah, I. Yeah, that's kind of what I remember, too. And I do remember taking my son to it. He, you know, my oldest son, uh, Hudson's, was probably in its last days, you know, just to go through there because um, it was so – I remembered it from being a kid. It was so incredible. So, um, yeah, Hudson's was – was something else. Um, and they sponsored so many different things besides the big parade. Um, J.L. Hudson, he was civic-minded, and he involved himself with many other corporations also. And he was part of the Detroit City Gas Company. He was part of a bank um, he was part of a stove company, and he really was someone who considered the people that he was serving. And not only in his store, where he made a beautiful display of the goods that he was selling, from house goods to fur coats, um, he also involved himself with as we said before, um, consumer protection of a good return policy for his customers. But he also, when the banks that he was involved in, the Third National Bank of Detroit, failed, um, it collapsed during the panic of 1893, he felt personally responsible for that. And he made sure that he paid everyone the balance that they had recorded in the bank for that person. He paid that balance back to each individual. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of civic duty. How much money was that? Do you, do you well, know? at the time, it was $265,000. And, and this was like the 1800s? So? This is 1893. Oh, my gosh. So how much would that be? Oh, how much would that be? That's over millions of dollars. Like almost a billion dollars. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That wow. he returned. So he he was foresighted in building a wonderful department store. He was also very minded and concerned about the people that he served. 
he was he was kind of an interesting um person. Was he like a re- religious guy kind of or You know, the my research there isn't a lot of research out there about him. He left no personal papers. Really? Or correspondence for people to have really? gone through to discover more of who the person was. He didn't marry. He didn't have children. He didn't? No, he did not. Um, he was engaged later in his life, but he did not have an opportunity to marry. He never married? No. The woman that he professed to love because he died. He died before he had the opportunity to do that. Oh, my gosh. He died on a business trip to England. Oh, my goodness. So his heirs were um, nephews because oh, he did have goodness. a brother who opened a store in Buffalo. Really? Um, yes, Buffalo, New York. And um, so it's his nephew that continued the family business. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize that he never married. That is amazing. Um, I did find some information about his uh, funeral. I guess um, he died in, is this right, 1912? That seems so early. It, he did die relatively early. Oh, my gosh. He died um, in 1912. And um, he died in England, I yes. guess. Yeah, he was on that trip, and they shipped his body home. Yes. He's and buried in Woodlawn. He's buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Detroit. And um, I guess they shipped the body back to his house on Boston Boulevard, which is a beautiful, beautiful street of gorgeous mansions uh, today, even in Detroit. And um, I guess the services were at the Central Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, And I'm not sure exactly where that church is. I think it is on Woodward at Witherall, but I'm not positive. Um, I did find out that the store uh, closed for the funeral and also the Detroit Institute of Arts, which he was a major sponsor of, closed for the day of his funeral uh, in respect. And um, they told a bell at the church – uh, for 65 strokes at um, the closing time of the store at 5.30. Um, and his six nephews, who I guess took over the business, carried his casket. So that's really, you know, he died young. He did. And yet his story lived on through his nephews. And lived on through the public life that he lived, the civic duty that he felt towards the city of Detroit. The rest of the facts are mostly unknown, though. Really? Yes. Don't know too much about him? No. What about the nephews? Do we know much about the nephews? Well, we know about J.L. Hudson Jr. Right. Right. And didn't he take it over when he was pretty young, too? I'm sure he did. Um yeah, you know, I think it was, um, you know, he died too young, and I think J.L. Hudson Jr. is maybe the J.L. Hudson that people think about. That is. 
that's who we associate Hudson's with Northland and Eastland. Right, and, right. When the move began yes, to the suburbs. And... Which actually helped to helped with the demise of Hudson's on Woodward. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. But let's talk about the parade a little bit. Um, you know, that parade is still going on. And that parade is amazing. And it's not called the Hudson's Parade anymore. No. But it started in 1924. I guess um, – a Hudson's display manager, Charles Wendell, watched a Toronto holiday parade put on by Eaton's department store and thought, oh, this would be great for Detroit. And so he put one on in 1924, the first one. It had four bands, four paper mache heads worn by marchers, ten floats, uh, including the old lady who lived in a shoe and Mother Goose and bands from three high school. Uh, next year, 1925 – the parade doubled in size, and 300 Hudson's employees marched along 25 floats pulled by horses and wagons and a live elephant, which is pretty cool. And the parade kept growing. In 1939, it had eight brass bands and over a 1,000 characters from fairy tales and nursery rhymes along with Donald Duck and what was called the world's biggest candy cane. Um, they didn't have the, the parade in 1943 and 1944 because of the war. And um, in 1979, Hudson's gave up primary sponsorship of the parade. But today, the parade company produces the event, uh, which is the third largest uh, holiday parade or parade of any kind in the United States after the Rose Bowl Parade and the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, you know, it's been, you know, a Hudson's thing from the very beginning. Um, and they had children that would design floats and win prizes. And, um, you know, they, you know, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's kind of evolved into a lot of different things. In 1964, the Grand Marshal was Lassie, and the television store was supposed to bound from a perch of artificial snow to a pedestal at the reviewing platform, but stage fright paralyzed the dog. <laughs> I can identify with that. No. <laughs> and the trainer coaxed the dog for four minutes while the network seconds ticked away and Santa's arrival was delayed. And finally, the dog made the leap and Santa got his time on TV. Um, and look where we are today. That parade continues and how many people still look forward to lining the streets of Woodward it, it, to it watch is, this. It is an amazing thing. And, and I think it's evolved now into uh, races. They have the turkey trot and kids races. And I mean, it's not just a parade anymore. It's it's just a huge, big event. It's a huge, big celebra celebration, you know. It starts um, off the holiday season. It really does. It totally does. Um. Yeah. Did you ever go to the parade, Linda? Yes, I did go to the parade. You did? Did you oh, ever go? 
Never. You never went. Okay, so I went once when my oldest son, Brooke, was, I think, four years old. And a girlfriend talked to me into going. So it was just this girlfriend and I and And my son, Brooke, who was four years old at the time. Maybe he he was really little. Three or four. I think he was four. And so we went, and we did not go early. We went right before the parade started. Oh, my And goodness. we elbowed our way to the very front of the viewing area, right in front of where Santa was supposed to be. And I do remember Sally, Sunny Elliott, who was a big, you know, oh, what personality. was he? Personality. Yeah, he was a huge, was the he weatherman. weatherman. He was a weatherman. Yes. Yeah, coming over and wanted to interview Brooke because we were right, right there. And Brooke was... Too little and too shy. He wouldn't say anything. So he, you know, left us and went to somebody else. And that's the only time I've ever been to the parade. But it was amazing. Did you enjoy it? It was great. <laughs> you know, it was it was great. I don't know why I never went, you know, any other time. What did you like about it? Uh, you know, I mean, that's a parade. That's a real parade. That is a big parade. I think I've always thought... You know, it's too crowded. Where do you park? You know, how do you get there? You'll never see anything. But the way we did it was amazing how we just went at the last minute and kind of just snuck our way up to the very front of it, you know, without pushing anyone past or anything like that. We just kind of, you know, went, got there and did it. We were there. So people could still do that today. They certainly could. They certainly could. You know, all it takes is guts, basically. And have a wonderful experience with their children or even just for adults to see a magnificent parade. Yeah, for sure. Oh, you know, um, I did find some information about uh, the most rebellious parader award goes to Chili Willie, a rogue 30-foot penguin who pulled free of his tethers in 1990 and took off on a 25-mile journey up the river to Lake St. Clair. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. And he was apprehended by the Coast Guard just (laughs) off Walpole Island. (laughs) And the next summer, Chili Willie, who was, I guess, still rambunctious, was on a promotional engagement at a car dealership. And he knocked a former parade official off the dealership roof, breaking her arm and leg. <laughs> this chilly Willie, he's a tough guy. That's for sure. You know. So, oh, and I guess, um, you know, parade officials are, you know, conscious that things can go wrong and whatever. And so <laughs> I didn't realize this. They always have a backup Santa. Hidden on the Santa float as a kind of understudy. Shh, don't tell children <laughs> there's a backup. <laughs> backstage, yeah, backstage information for sure. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, after the glory days of of Hudson's, and there were so many of them, and it was so wonderful, you know, um, it went into crisis mode, you know, and it started with, the suburbs, you know, I, which is the story of Detroit. I think the yes. story of Hudson's is the story of Detroit. And Hudson's went and started some of that with the Eastland Mall, the Northland Malls. Um, they helped that exodus from the large department store downtown. Yeah. You know, as as people were moving out of the city, so were the stores. Yes. And... um 
You know, I mean, it was uh, evidently the the nephews, the Webbers, are the they had the idea to to open a big suburban shopping center. Eastland, Eastland was the first. Eastland on Detroit's out. Eastland is still there, you know. And um, I guess it was designed by Austrian architect Victor Groen, and featured a large circular Hudson store with a tower, um, and. The suburban stores were, you know, phenomenally popular. Phenomenal. I mean, I'm sure you went to them. I we went to did. them. We did. And we loved the idea of an indoor mall protected from the elements. Y- you know what? It's got some benefits to it, especially in our winters. Yes. You know, I mean, we've got horrible, cold, icy, snowy winters here in Detroit. <laughs> Oh, where's your adventuresome spot? I know it. I know it. But, but Hudson's was the mainstay. They were the anchor for those malls. They were still a popular store in which to shop. And, you know, another factor totally was um, crime in Detroit. The The level of crime went up in the city and... People became nervous about going to downtown and shopping downtown. And that didn't, you know, and I mean, and if you could go to Eastland or you could go to Northland or you could go to Oakland Mall. Um, why would you want to go downtown? Spot. Yeah, and find a parking <laughs> spot right there, you know, and not have to worry about crime. Uh, you, you were probably going to pick that, especially if you lived in the if suburbs. You, yes. And a lot of people did live in the suburbs. So, you know, it just it, it you know, it was kind of like a perfect storm, you know, where you know, crime got bad and the stores were out in the suburbs and you know, it just it just it just went downhill. It was just really it was just really sad and it all led to the implosion. <laughs> Which is don't you wonder sometimes, though, if they hadn't with the way the city is coming back? Well, yeah, Comeback City. If it's the name of this podcast, Comeback City. Yes. If that building was still there, what it may have become. Yes. What vision someone like Dan Gilbert may have had. Well, for yeah, it. there you go. You wonder if maybe some of the legacy of that grand building. I think it was a mistake. Have. I do not think they should have imploded the building. I think they should have. You know, kept it, and now Detroit is restoring its old historical buildings. I was yes. recently in the Broderick Tower, which was mm. vacant for 30 years. Where is the Broderick Tower? The Broderick Tower is on Woodward, right across the street from uh, Comerica Park, where the Tigers play. And um, a man named Michael Higgins owns that building, and I recently talked to him, and he bought that building in 1976. And at the time, it was all dentists and doctor's offices. And but he said it was it was a bad neighborhood at the time. That was the the time when all the all the fancy movie theaters downtown went. Triple X, and there was no Comerica Park, and he said it was a bad neighborhood. It was a really bad neighborhood, and eventually, everybody moved out of that building. And he said that building was vacant for thirty years, and yet he held on to that building. He held on to it all this. He bought it when he was in his twenties. He 
He still owns it to this day. 30 years, he said, at one time it was the tallest building in the world that had been vacant for that long of a period of time. You know, if you're in Detroit and you see the big mural of the whale, that's the building. That's the project. That's the building. Okay. So five years ago, he, uh, he re, he restored it. He pulled out all the offices and put in apartments. And I was recently over there in several of the apartments, including the penthouse apartment, which has multiple balconies and is beautiful. And so all the apartments are brand new and they all have, you know, granite countertops and, you know, stainless steel appliances and they're beautiful. And you can look right down into Comerica Park from the 35th floor penthouse. It's amazing. You know, I mean, they could have done this with Hudson's, you know, they could have done something like this with Hudson's. They didn't. They blew it up. They imploded it. Oh, they what a shame. It. I know. The, the store closed. Um, January 17th in 1983, after more than, more than 90 years of business. And uh, the corporate offices stayed there, and about 1,200 people still work there until 1990. And it was sold to a Windsor company, and then it became an eyesore. You know, broken windows and trespassers and homeless people. And Well, downtown Detroit had no draw. It was looking bad. It was looking bad. And it was a bad neighborhood. So, you know, and I guess there were several ideas to redevelop the structure and, it, you know, they just didn't go anywhere. So timing was bad. Timing was bad. October 24th, 1998 at a cost of $12 million. And in less than a minute, it was imploded, leaving a 60 foot high pile of rubble. You know, so it's been kind of just empty. I think there's a parking structure underneath it for all these years since 98, you know, just nothing. But Detroit, Detroit is comeback city. It's changing. Things are happening down there. And there is a plan to redevelop the site. And in fact, on December 1st, Dan Gilbert and his company, Bedrock, broke ground on a $900,000 mixed-use development that at 800 feet will be the tallest building in the city. A 1 million square foot unnamed project It will be on the Hudson site. Hopefully they'll honor that Hudson site. That Hudson's is a true part of Detroit's development. Yeah, totally. You know, it's going to have a 734-foot tower. It's going to be higher than the Renaissance Center, which is pretty high, you know. So, um, yeah, he's got a world-renowned architect, Bisham Charbakti. He's in. He's planning to create a building that incorporates a lot of what hip young workers want. That's the plan. So, um this is going to be exciting. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, yeah. It will be. It'll be nice to see the site used for something new and vital and bring more life to that area again. You know, and Dan Gilbert, he's, you know, I mean, he's been buying build buildings up like mad. And at this point, he's looking at like a true visionary because, you know, he's, this has been going on for quite a while. I mean, he's got 
the Madison Theater Building, the Chase Tower, the Two Detroit Center, the Dime Building, the First National Building. He's got three small buildings on Woodward Avenue. He's got the former Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago Detroit Branch Building. He's got the Kresge Building. He's, you know, he's going to do it. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what he's going to what he's going to build on that site and um, come back city. A fun place to be. Uh, yeah. I'm excited. I'm very excited about the future of Detroit. So that's our podcast for today. And um, I hope that we've been able to kind of give you an idea of Detroit's past, present, and future. Thanks. I'm Linda Shepard and Nancy Culvert. Nancy Culvert.